Welcome to this episode of Mission Business, a podcast about good business for those in the business of good, presented by your part-time controller, LLC, also known as YPTC. My name is Jennifer Oliva, the host of Mission Business and Managing Partner at YPTC. On this episode of Mission Business, I spoke with Jerry Williams, retired FBI agent and award-winning author, podcaster, and storyteller. Jerry is using her professional experiences with scams and schemers to write crime fiction about greed and often jokes that she is reliving her glory days by producing and hosting FBI Retired Case File Review a true crime podcast with over 5 million downloads and more than 240 episodes, where she interviews retired FBI agents about their high-profile cases and careers. In our conversation, we discuss Jerry's experiences through her career with the FBI, interesting cases involving greed and fraud at nonprofit organizations, and what nonprofits can do to avoid being victims of these crimes. And now my conversation with Jerry Williams. Jerry Williams, thank you so much for being here on Mission Business Podcast. Thanks for having me. I think this is going to be a great conversation. We're really happy to have you here. Uh, You have such a a great career as an FBI agent, now an author and a podcaster. But tell us the details of your story. Yeah, So I was with the FBI for more than 26 years. 24 of those I spent in the Philadelphia division working on an economic crime squad where I did fraud and corruption. Uh, Cases like advance fee schemes and telemarketing fraud and embezzlements and, you know, just uh, Ponzi schemes. I forgot. That's one of my biggest cases was a Ponzi scheme against (laughs) a nonprofit, against nonprofits. So uh, don't want to forget that one. But I worked uh, those type of cases for the majority of my career. I'm still fascinated by frauds and schemes and scams. And, you know, it's one of my favorite topics, other than just the FBI in general, uh, to talk about. So, yeah, let's go. You've been quoted as saying, with a gun, they can steal hundreds, but with a lie, they can steal millions. Uh, that is so profound and relevant to some of the nonprofit schemes that we're going to talk about today. Uh, so I'd really like to, like, should we get into the stories? Yeah, let's do that. I just want to cover a number of recent uh, crimes that have occurred that just really show you what uh, nonprofits have to be concerned about when it comes to fraud and corruption. For sure. I think it would be uh, good for us to hear the story and then we can connect it because we're accountants and this Mission Business Podcast focuses on the business of nonprofits. Uh, What are the internal controls that were um, broken in the story and then what nonprofits can do to prevent uh, these crimes and these issues from yeah. happening to them. I think that would be good to connect it, yeah. connect all the dots. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Uh, the first one is Tiffany Carr. And you will see uh, a little bit of a pattern here. Uh, Tiffany was the CEO yes. of this organization. That was The organization was the Florida Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And they were the state's sole provider and coordinator of funds that went to 42 shelters. And she took, misappropriated, embezzled, whatever you want to call it, $5 million. 
that is that's a big yeah. one. That's a that's a really and the, five million dollars. What did she do? What did what was her she scheme? Yeah, well, she just through threatening, uh, just through tr- uh, wire transfers and misappropriating the funds. You know, she just converted it to her own use so that she can live a very lavish, you know, lifestyle. And, you know, by doing this and and not being caught for several years, you know, she almost disrupted and dismantled uh, the state's ability to provide to, again, 42 shelters. So, um, my goodness. And and I talked about a pattern because it's a little hard to put safeguards in place when it's the head of the organization that's committing the fraud. And with a nonprofit, typically the board can do something about that if there's a proper tone at the top if we're connecting it to internal controls. But I read on this story, the board was in cahoots as well. Many of the board members were profiting and receiving funds um, improperly from the organization. And they also, I'm not sure if they were convicted or they were part of the repayment of a lot of this money. Yeah, it's just, it's sad, isn't it? I mean, this is an organization that is providing for you know, the victims of domestic violence. It's tough for a nonprofit to uncover that kind of scheme when the board and the CEO are uh, in cahoots, if you will. Uh, But if there was a proper whistleblower policy or people felt, you know, they the the only way they're going to catch it is outsiders, you know, the the, uh, money uh, that their grantors or their funders might catch something. Or their um, someone, one of their employees is going to speak up yeah. at some point. I tried to to see how this scheme was caught. I wasn't able to to figure that out, but yeah. they were receiving funds from the state. So I would hope that at some yes. point, you know, the state, you know, these grants that the state was providing, that there was a situation where an audit was done. And they could look a little bit deeper into exactly where the money was going. Yeah, it didn't indicate that there was a whistleblower. So hopefully that is the way. Um, often, and in some of these stories, you're going to hear um, the auditors didn't pick up on a lot of these yeah. issues. Yeah, so yeah. it's it's hard. Auditors will tell you that it's not their job to uncover fraud, which I get. Uh, but, you know, you would hope so, they do catch some of it. Yes, yes. And, um, you know, thank Goodness for that. Uh, another one, and again, it was the COO in this uh, this situation, the chief operating officer, Nicole Lascabar. Lascarbo probably is uh, the right way to pronounce that. And she stole $1.4 million, but the real deal on this is that she stole it from two different nonprofits. And uh, that was amazing. And what we learned was that uh, the first nonprofit was one that focused on nutrition and policy research for developing countries. And she was caught and having uh, stolen over a million dollars from them. But before she was actually convicted and indicted, she had applied for and accepted another position (sighs) under another name. And under that name... You know, she went into that organization, and um, when the treasurer of the organization resigned, just happened to resign, she kind of just went right in there and took over and used, the prosecutor said that she used the second organization's funds like a piggy bank and stole more money. 
just took that opportunity, jumped right in, and did. I guess they did find out uh, that she was under indictment on the first fraud. <laughs> Eventually, <laughs> this is like this is a twofer. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you're talking about somebody not learning their lesson. You know, uh, the organization has to have uh, in. Accounting talk, segregation of duties, <laughs> where you have multiple people involved in the process. And it sounded like uh, both of these organizations had uh, a problem with that because if somebody else was signing the checks or somebody else was reconciling the bank accounts and looking at the details, it might have been caught sooner. But these background checks uh, so important, too, because I'm not sure if the second organization did a background check. I know she used another name, but perhaps that might have uncovered uh, the first uh, scheme. I mean, she was being indicted for $1.4 million fraud. You would hope right. that it was uh, that it would show up. But um, but. You know, organizations speaking up and prosecuting, I think, is also a really big uh, imp- takeaway from this because a couple of times we've seen organizations get burned, our clients, because a previous organization did not speak up. The fraudster was hired by them. Nothing showed up in a background check because there was no prosecution. And, you know, our clients get hurt by that. Yeah. And I think sometimes during a background check, one of the most important things is, is a personal reference. And I think that Mm -hmm. if you do a personal reference, starting with somebody that the new employee is recommending and then branching out on your own, asking that person who else knows her so that now you have a fresh reference that is not handpicked by the employee. I think that helps a lot. And I think in this case, somebody, if they had kept digging and, and looking at these, uh, you know, second and third level references, they would have been able to discover <laughs> that, you know, she was under indictment. Now, the, another one is um, that I was going to bring up is really when you think about, well, when I think about nonprofits, and I know they come in all you know, shapes mm-hmm. and forms. But when I think about nonprofits, you know, it's usually a smaller group that is started by somebody who uh, wanted to serve and saw a need. Mm-hmm. Maybe they were a victim of a, a particular type of crime and they wanted to help, you know, future crime victims. And that's the case for this particular one with Sonia Arrington in Erie, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, she diverted funds from uh, her own charity. She had created a charity called Mothers Against Teen Violence. And, you know, she did, she diverted those funds. Both cash and checks would be donated to the organization. And when she had cash, she took a portion of that for herself mm. and used it for paying uh, gambling and personal expenses to the tune of $70,000. Man. And organizations like that that are doing, you know, helping such innocent victims, that really that really gets to the public, right? Yeah. It sounds like the conditions at the organization were ripe for fraud at uh, all of these organizations. And we call that those conditions the fraud triangle. Uh, and that is uh, there's opportunity. You know, there's not checks and balances of segregation of duties aren't there. There's pressure on a particular person to commit the fraud. And it sounds like in all 
these cases that we're talking about, there was gambling problems or a financial uh, issue in the lives of an individual. Uh, the, going through a divorce was one of the, the cases I remember reading, uh, uh, and it was um, very messy. And then the third part of the fraud triangle is rationalization. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody's doing it. Uh, in the case of the the Florida domestic abuse organization, if the board is in on it, the CEO is like, well, they're not going to stop me, so I can rationalize this. And in this case, the Erie case, uh, she was the one that started the the fraudster was the one that started the organization. And uh, perhaps she's like, oh, well, I deserve this. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Who knows what Entitled goes through people's minds. I've worked so hard. I've given yeah. everything to this organization. And I'm not I'm not really getting paid well. And here's this money and people love me because of the work that I'm doing. They're going to want me right. to, you know, be happy and to, uh, you know, I like you said, I deserve this. And that's the rationalization. And it sounds like the in this case, in the Erie case, that was the executive director saying, you know, money that we were receiving, we're She's pulling out of the organization before it even gets to the organization, other than uh, someone writing checks and taking money out of the organization in that way, in the expense side of right. things. So we're covering all bases here. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's even harder can... for someone to detect, you know, that type of yes. embezzlement when it hasn't even been, you know, put on the books yet. That's a tough one. Uh, And the only uh, way we know is to have dual control over cash when it comes in the door. When uh, checks come in, it's a little easier. When cash comes in, that makes it really tough. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to Mission Business Podcast. My name is Carol Melvin, and I'm a senior manager and leader in YPTC's Washington, D.C. office. YPTC is currently hiring nationwide. We offer a flexible work environment, 35-hour standard work week, perks and incentives, full benefits, as well as full and part-time positions to fit your needs. The best part? You can use your accounting skills for good and directly impact the success of amazing nonprofit organizations. At YPTC, we know that a career is not one-size-fits-all. We are dedicated to a workplace guided by trust, support, education, integrity, equity, community, and strong relationships. YPTC is consistently recognized for its strong and employee-focused culture. Most recently, we appeared on Inc. Magazine's Best Places to Work list and ranked second in Accounting Today's Best Accounting Firms to Work For. So what's next? Are you ready to love your job? Apply today on YPTC.com or contact careers at YPTC.com. We can't wait to meet you. All right. So the next one, again, is the head of the organization. And his name was uh, Michael uh, Meekum, Michael Meekum. And he's the president of a nonprofit training program. Now, he was earning $194,000 a year running this training program. What's so ironic is that the training program taught bankers how to combat fraud. That's that's very ironic and crazy. Yes. So he was recently sentenced to two years in prison for embezzling $700,000. He was using the funds to go to casinos and cruises and 
to pay alimony to his three ex-wives. Yeah. 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 That's, uh, that's how it happens. And uh, there's that pressure that we were talking about before. And we always say with the, the executive directors, uh, there should be checks and balances on them. Uh, they're, they shouldn't have full reign over the full um, uh, bank accounts and credit cards. Uh, the board should have some oversight on the executive director's payments that they're making to themselves specifically. They should never be like signing checks to themselves nor uh, approving their own credit card um, statement or payments that they're making uh, for their expenses. So we always recommend that a treasurer or the board chair look at that. Yeah. And I've actually sat on several boards for nonprofits and, you know, they always did a yeah. financial report, but you know, the, the reality is we weren't looking into all of the, you know, the, the, the accounting that's on there. We, we just took the report, you know, at, yeah. You know, full faith. And uh, yeah, yeah. So definitely, you know, you have to rely on an outsource accounting firm to be able to really <laughs> dig into this. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think it when you do have, you know, I think there is um, a level of support for a nonprofit and for any organization that has an outside set of eyes on the numbers and can be part of the internal control process, uh, meaning they can be not that we don't sign checks, uh, but we will be part of the process ensuring that all the documentation is there for uh the check signer, the proper approvals are part of the uh, payment process. It's super important that there's, if it's not an outsourced firm, that there's multiple people in the process to look at it. And I also sat on many nonprofit boards. We have a responsibility to make sure that, you know, number one, the people that are in place in the accounting department, whether it's an outsourced firm or, you know, whoever's on the team has the right skills and abilities to do the job, that the background checks are done, that the policies and procedures are are proper. And that way the board can feel a little bit more comfortable in the activities of the organizations from a high level. And of course, having an annual audit is always super important. Absolutely. You know, um, and when we talk about the head of a nonprofit you know, participating in a fraud scheme, it almost is, you know, necessary then to look at the people underneath them. Because if they do notice what's going on, then they're probably going to take some of those liberties themselves. I remember being on, again, I was on an economic squad, economic crime squad for a number of years. And there was one fraud case. It wasn't one of mine, but it was really fascinating because the person in the organization that was embezzling, he, there was one person who caught him and what he started to do was lavish gifts on her. So she had her whole kitchen <laughs> renovated. Uh, you know, she had a new car that he paid for and gave to her. And so in her mind, she wasn't defrauding right. the company. You know, he was. Right. No, she right. was benefiting yeah. from it. And I don't... For sure. You know, I'm not sure if she was charged directly, but she definitely was a major witness 
in that case against him. Uh, but again, it's 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 you know the corruption of uh, you know a, a whole group of people began uh, again yes. because of this rational rationalization that you that you talked about. Yes. And that, that's just collusion. Collusion's a tough one when there's two people involved in a scheme. And I think it's tougher to crack because you have multiple, pe- multiple people covering it up. Well, we've talked about internal issues with nonprofits being, you know, being defrauded mm-hmm. internally by their own employees. But of course, they can be victims of fraud from the oh. outside also from scammers and you know people just trying to get into their accounting systems and taking their money and i have a case that uh, addresses that too a seattle program called mary's place which is a nonprofit that serves women and children and families that are homeless recently had mm-hmm. $831,000 stolen from them by scammers. And basically what the scammers mm. did, they made a fraudulent payment request on behalf of Mary's Place to Seattle's Human Services Department, and they were paid. So this is money oh, that wow. should have yeah. gone to yeah. Mary's Place. The scammers said, hey, we're Mary's Place, and the Seattle Human Service Department. The funder. Yeah, the funder. The funder paid them. Yeah. So now Mary's Place is... Funded the criminal yeah, instead of the, Mary's yeah, Place. Exactly. I think it was resolved. You know, once it was shown that it was fraudulent, then Mary's Place got the payment that they, you know, were entitled to. And uh, it was the it was the city of Seattle that was out of the money. But uh, yeah, you never know. That's rough. And it's phishing schemes, too. That could have been uh, just someone uh, using Mary's Place uh, email, fake email address somehow. But it really blows my mind how many people will do transactions based on just an email from someone not realizing that it's an actual it's not an actual uh, person that you think it is. It is, it's a fraudster, it's a scammer. Um, it, it, we've seen it a lot. Yes. And the only way to prevent that is to never, ever send money uh, to anyone based on just an email request. Right. And, you know, used it used to be like, oh, from uh, overseas, and you could really tell that it was so fake, the email. And now the criminals are getting so sophisticated that it really looks like it's coming from uh, an individual in power that says, hey, send this money over to so-and-so and take care of it for me, okay? And, okay, let's uh, wire that money right away. And it, it's really imperative that uh, individuals um, check yes. to see who they're really sending uh, that to. But also, I think it's really helpful for nonprofits to have training on Uh, on phishing schemes and potential. I like when there are fake phishing schemes where the IT department sends people uh, fake phishing schemes Uh, and tries to see if they'll fall for it. Yes, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, It's a good good way to train people. And, and, And a great tip, and this is just the basic, basic tip, because I get those emails every single day and I just, you know, the, the first thing that you need to do is just to look to see where it came from. Look at the actual address 
And usually say it's from supposed to be from Amazon or from your bank. If you look yeah. at that email address, the, the URL portion of it, it does not go back to the company or the business that they say they are. Yeah. That's the simplest thing That's for you right. to do. But it, if, if it is yeah. a request from somebody that you do have an account with, delete the email, go right into your account. And if there's no request for payment right. or there's no error in accounting, then just move on. It was, yeah. it was fake. It's not just, real. You don't have to worry fake. about anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Such good advice. Jerry, thanks for going through all those cases. This is, uh, it's been a really fascinating conversation. What else uh, do you think our listeners and viewers should know about fraud at nonprofits? Well, depending on the size of the nonprofit, usually what the issue is, is that they're running on a, uh, a shoestring budget. And, you know, they believe that they don't have the funding or the resources or the, the, the money. You know, they can't afford to put in these internal controls and to add in the right uh, type of software. But the reality is they can't afford not to. And especially when you're a tight-knit group and people are there uh, allegedly because they just love the particular service Absolutely. or program you know, that's being provided, you know, sometimes there's a switch at some point where people, again, feel a little bit entitled or, or that they deserve it because they've given so much. Yes. And uh, so those type of internal controls are, are, are really needed. You know, they're really needed. Yeah. Um, on every situation where you hear the story about the, the and it's usually a woman, I, I have to say, even though 75% of frauds are committed by men, but when it comes to like the little sweet bookkeeper or somebody that works in a nonprofit, <laughs> it, it is usually a woman. And um, in those situations, you it's like a, 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 a kick to the gut to know that somebody that you mm -hmm. trusted, maybe even loved, you know, because the, you, they worked mm -hmm. with you so long and you, and you cared for them so much has stolen from from your nonprofit. It's, it's, a, it's a sad situation. Well, it has been a pleasure meeting you. I've listened to some of your podcasts. They're great. Thank I you. plan on following you uh, even more now, uh, getting to know you like this. And I uh, just so appreciate you being here, Jerry. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I love to talk about my favorite subject, which is fraud <laughs> and scam. And you are great at it. <laughs> thank, thank you. you. That was my conversation with Jerry Williams, retired FBI agent and award-winning author, podcaster, and storyteller. To learn more about Jerry Williams, visit jerrywilliams.com. Up next, we will hear from YPTC's own Geraldine Dressler and YPTC associate Jennifer Blasey in our Ask the Controller segment. Jennifer previously worked as a forensic accounting and litigation consultant, and we'll hear some helpful hints for preventing fraud at nonprofits. Hello, and welcome to Ask the Controller. I'm your host, Geraldine Dressler, and a big welcome to our guest, Jen Blasey. Jen, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. 
So Jerry talked about boards receiving financial reports, but then not questioning the underlying accounting. I think the issue here is trust, right? It's human nature to be trusting of people who work in nonprofits because we assume their good hearts were attracted to the mission. But how can board members and executive directors also remain vigilant to protect their organizations from fraud? Sure. So um, we see all too often that it's the insiders who are committing fraud. And so it's really important for board members and executive directors to be vigilant and to be exercising healthy skepticism. Not every board member is going to understand accounting or know how to detect fraud, but there's a few basic things that every single board member can be doing to help with those efforts to detect fraud and help prevent fraud and even uncover fraud. And those main things are really to be present, to be active, to be curious, be random, and be mindful of opportunity. And so what does that mean? So be present, show up, show up to those board meetings and committee meetings. You're on the board, that's part of your role, be there. Be active, participate, ask those questions, right? You may not understand those documents being put in front of you, those financial statements monthly, the annual audits, the annual 990s. You may not know what they mean, but ask questions. That's part of your job. You're not the expert as a board member. That's the staff's job to educate you. I have a client who recently added a new board member, and he, he said right away, I have a lot of questions. I'm not going to monopolize any one particular meeting, but I'm going to ask one question at every meeting. And he does that, and that really keeps the staff on their toes. You know, be random. That's what auditors are doing. They are being unpredictable so that people can't plan and they don't know what you're going to ask. So change up your questions every month. Ask about payroll and headcount. Next month, ask about revenue. Focus on not just big dollar items, but also small dollar items, items that are just under that materiality threshold where things can be buried, but they can also accumulate over time. Um, we talked a little bit about the fraud triangle earlier, uh, those three main areas that cause people to commit fraud. So motivation and uh, rationalization are not things that a board member may be able to identify. Um, but what board members can control, what an organization can control really is opportunity. And so those are the areas you really wanna focus on. Where are the opportunities for fraud at this organization? So ask questions about that. What are the internal controls? What are the segregations of duties? Um, what, are, what is the organization doing to safeguard their cash and to also um, control outgoing payments? Those are the, really the areas that you can focus on as a board member. Yeah, so it sounds like it's a lot of trust, but verify, right? You wanna ask those questions and really just have that confidence that your questions are not dumb questions because if you have them, then it's likely that there are other board members that have them too. So that's some great advice, Jen. You recently gave a webinar to a group of charity regulators from around the country. Uh, what observations did you talk about as being um, key areas where nonprofits can often fall victim to fraudsters? And then what can nonprofits do to prevent these types of frauds? Sure. So in that presentation, we really highlighted three main areas of fraud risk we see most commonly at nonprofit organizations. And those have to do with payment schemes where employees or managers can steal from the organization. And so those areas include accounts payable, payroll, as well as credit and debit cards and employee expense reimbursements. So the main ways that nonprofits can protect against fraud in these areas are really similar to the things we just talked about. It's really having those internal controls in place, those segregations of duties, and the oversight. So it sounds like we're asking a lot of board members to be um, in, in a role and asking questions, but there's really a lot of things that they can do that don't require a lot of time commitment, which include you know, asking questions and being random with, with, with what you're doing. 
um, so that the staff know that you're there, you're present and you're watching. Yeah. And that in and of itself is part of the internal control structure, right? I mean, even with the 990, there's a requirement to circle that to circulate that among board members for review. So it uh, sounds like the name of the game is to speak up, to ask questions, um, and again, trust, but verify. So great advice. Thank you so much, Jen, for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Mission Business Podcast. We look forward to bringing you more stories of innovation and perseverance from nonprofits around the world. I want to thank our team at PWP Video for their guidance and assistance in the development and production of this podcast. They are a great partner for Media with a Mission, and you can find them at pwpvideo.com. Additional information about this episode can be found at missionbusinesspod.com. And follow us on social media at Mission Business Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I want to thank our guests for this episode, Jerry Williams and YPTC associate Jennifer Blasey. This podcast was produced by Erica Blair and Geraldine Dressler of Your Part-Time Controller, LLC. Dave Winston and Michael Schweizheimer are the producers from PWP Video. And the show was directed and edited by Pat Ganley. My name is Jennifer Oliva. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Mission Business, brought to you by Your Part-Time Controller, LLC. LLC.